This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 10 of the Stable Scoop Radio Show. It's eventing talk with Gina Miles and the USEF. Welcome to the Stable Scoop, with weekly shows delivered right to you. With Helena and Glenn the Geek, live from the stable, it's every week. They'll bring you the news through hell, hot water, while using their tails as their own fly swatters. Sit on down and laugh till your poop Cause it's time again for Stable Scoop Stable Scoop Stable Scoop Stable Scoop I am Glenn the Geek And I am Helena B And this is the Stable Scoop Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network it's eventing week this week on the Stable Scoop Radio Show, and we're very excited about it. We have a great show planned for you. But before we get into that, I wanted to remind everybody about next week's show, which is the cloning show. It's all about cloning. Viagen, the company that's doing most of the horse cloning here in the United States, I believe they're out of Texas, contacted us, and they wanted a chance to explain cloning and what it is and how they do it, why they do it, and what's the science involved in it. So they're going to be on our show next week. We'll take a look at that, no matter how you feel about the subject, and Helena and I disagree a little bit about that subject, but no matter how you feel, I think it's important to learn both sides to the story, and we'll be taking a look at both sides next week. So stay tuned, sign up through iTunes, make sure you're getting this automatically downloaded to your iPods and your MP3 players. Well, eventing week, we've been looking forward to this so much because Helena and I are both partial to eventing. Uh, Helena, what's going on in today's show? I'm very excited for today's show. Our first guest today is silver medalist Gina Miles, and this was a fabulous interview. We talked to Gina a little bit about what life has been like since the Olympics, and uh, we've got some inside information on uh, her relationship with McKinley and, and how they ride and what's up next for them. And after that, we've got Joni Morris. Joni's the High Performance Communications Manager for the USEF, the United States Equestrian Federation. And she's going to talk to us about the safety changes in eventing, um, what's been done and what's coming up with that as well. Yeah, this has probably been one of the biggest years as far as changes for the rules in eventing in a very long time. So we're going to get caught up on that and try and try and get a handle, too, on whether they're done or there's more to come, what's coming down the pike as well. That's right. All right, and we wanted to thank our first uh, sponsor, and that's the Barnworks. It's a boutique marketing firm that caters to horse businesses uh, such as yourselves, such as stables, trainers, farms, and more. Let them help you build a website that can turn uh, visitors into new business, get you new clients, and save you tons of time in the process. With more than 15 years' experience in the corporate world and lots of hands-on horse experience, the Barnwork offers a new combination of horse sense and business sense. These are horse people that build websites, so they know the horse customer. They know the kind of people that are going to be visiting your site. Definitely pay them a visit and see if they can help your website website develop more business for you. You can visit them at thebarnworks.com or call 978-468-5167. That's thebarnworks.com or 978-468-5167. All right, I think we should just get right to the interview that everybody's been waiting for. Our next guest has been riding since she was seven. She's had her heart set on eventing since the age of 11. She was an avid pony clubber. She graduated in HA, and she still helps out her pony club there in Central California. She has quite a list of accomplishments in her career as an eventer, including 2006. She was a Fair Hill champ in 2006. She was also a Gold Cup champion in advanced. She, she also had the USEA Advanced Horse of the Year in 2006. In 2007, she did an individual bronze at the Pan American Games and also a team gold at the Pan American Games. She's had many firsts and events across the country and the world. And a couple weeks ago, she was silver medalist in the individual eventing at the 2008 Olympics in Hong Kong. And add to that a devoted wife and mother of two beautiful kids. Let's welcome Gina Miles. 
Hi, Gina. We appreciate you being on with us today. And I know you just got back from an interesting visit yesterday, didn't you? I did. Yes, I, I was able to go to the White House. Uh, the Olympic athletes, all the Olympic athletes, all the Paralympic athletes were invited by President Bush uh, to come to the White House, and he honored and recognized us there. So that was a great trip. What What did they do? What was all the athletes were brought in and in on buses and through a special security and onto the South Lawn, and they had a chair set up there for us and bleachers set up for all of us to take a picture there on the steps of the White House, up on the balcony, up on the stairs of the White House. So, what a unique experience to be able to do that. Uh, President Bush had a, a nice a speech where he uh, talked about the Olympics and talked about um, uh, how special it was for us to have competed there at the Olympics and. So just a neat gathering and, and a chance to actually see a bunch of the Olympians that uh, we haven't really seen some things. That sounds great. So other than being able to visit the White House, how else has your life changed since winning the silver medal in Beijing? Well, it certainly has been very busy. There have been, I had no idea that there would be so many uh, post-Olympic celebrations, and that, that has definitely been a surprise, and it has been very enjoyable, uh, but it certainly has, has been sort of a whirlwind as well. Uh, we also were invited to be on the Oprah show um, earlier last month to visit the state capitol in California as uh, Universal Studios by uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, and as well as lots of private local parties, a lot of celebrations, people in the community that are very excited about the Olympic medal. Um, the last celebration I was at last weekend, actually, I'm the first California rider to earn an in, uh, individual eventing medal, an eventing medal at all. So it's very exciting for California. So all of the California eventing enthusiasts um, are really enjoying the, this, this trip as much as I am. Well, it's very exciting for Gina, too. Yeah. yeah, Oprah. Uh, <laughs> Oprah, hello. Now, now, you will, have... you be on the, will you be on the Oprah show, or what, tell us a little bit more about, about that? Um, yeah, we will. You can catch a little glimpse if you know where to look. Of course, they have the equestrian <laughs> athletes. <laughs> they have the equestrian athletes tucked away behind the water polo, water polo guys who are quite tall. So. Oh. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, there's a little, a little glimpse of us. None of the equestrians were interviewed, but I think Oprah missed a good opportunity there to interview us equestrians. But, but uh, there are little glimpses of us. It, it was on her season premiere on uh, September 8th. Did you ever imagine 20 years ago when you were just starting riding that, that you'd be here today? Um, well, of course, I always dreamed of it. You know, you have big dreams and, and big goals and big plans. Um, that it actually came to reality, no, is a little bit of a, a, little bit of a surprise, a little of a, a dream come true. So we're still sort of trying to pinch ourselves back to reality. What's been the coolest thing since, since you got back? The coolest thing, um, just sharing my medal with everybody. You know, everybody has been just so excited to see an Olympic medal. A lot of people have said, oh, I've never seen an Olympic medal. And for them just to hold it and touch it and see it and see how much excitement and how much that means to people, uh, that's been pretty cool. Cool. So now what about McKinley? What's he been up to since the, since the Games? <laughs> He's been on a long vacation. He um, <laughs> had his shoes, his shoes pulled off. And uh, just been on vacation, on rest and, and recuperation, recovery. He is starting to get a little bored of his vacation, though. <laughs> so he is he is looking to, to go back and do something. He won't compete the rest of the year. But, um, but he is looking for a little bit more than just hanging out. Actually, McKinley is very interesting to me. I, I'm wondering what you would credit as the number one reason he's performed so consistently for you. I know there's so much that goes into your training, but what do you think is the number one reason he is just the superstar that he is and that you work so well together? Um, so, you know, it's the quality that when you look at horses that you can't necessarily, that you can't look for. I mean, horses either have the desire to compete or they don't. And he, he loves it. And that's what, um, his, his attitude about it, his, his attitude about going out and doing it, he wants to do it. And when you're talking about competing with horses at that elite level, you can't make them, that's for sure. And, and you don't know some horses, you, you won't know when you look at a hundred horses standing out there, which one really wants to go out there and be a competitor. Now, are you going to, do you have plans for him to make it to 2010 to the, to the WEG? 
Um, I would love to ride him at the WAG in 2010. You know, he started his, his career off um, when he was eight years old at Rolex Kentucky, and, and we've been back to Kentucky many times since. And, and I think everybody that's ridden there knows what a special place it is and how special it is to compete there. So uh, we've been to the World Equestrian Games before, but to go to the WAG in Kentucky in our hometown would be, would be absolutely incredible. Cool. Well, I'm, uh, we have no doubt you're going to do that. Which leads me, you say it's so cool to ride here in Kentucky. I'm, I'm in Lexington. What, what is the coolest place you would say, what is the neatest place? You've been all over the place now. And, and how, how was the trip to Hong Kong more challenging or less challenging than going to England or the Pan Am Games or anything like that? Um, well, first of all, they did an amazing job at the Hong Kong Jockey Club there. They spared no expense and really put on a first-class competition. I mean, the, the facilities were amazing. They, they did such a good job. So that was a wonderful place to compete. Uh, one of the hard things about competing in an Olympic Games, is, though, is the host country is not used to hosting a type of an eventing competition. It's not like going to Rolex where they've got it like clockwork and right. everything runs perfectly organized and perfectly on schedule because they've been doing it for years. Um, you know, things change. You know, this ring is open from this time this day open. It's not open tomorrow. Or You know, the, the, the rules just keep changing. It's sort of a, a moving target. And that can be difficult. It can be you, your, your routines are broken up. Um, we, we, we had a certain time that we had to ride. We had to sign up for arenas. Obviously, trying to avoid the heat by riding early in the morning or late at night under light. So it changes your routine, and that, that can be a difficult way to compete under a different type of a routine. Um, so I noticed, I noticed that in your that you, you did uh, really neat, and people can still find it at mileseventing.com, your diary. Mm-hmm. Uh, your webmaster did a good job with the little book and everything, yeah. by the way. I thought that was really cute. Uh, and if anybody hasn't read it, it's interesting now that the games are over to go back and read it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I did that yesterday. It's interesting to read what what and you you talk about everything where you were in England and everything and before you led up to the games. But I know that's one of the things you mentioned is is trying to get a ring and riding at tw- you know eleven o'clock at night and exactly and, and all of that. Yeah. yeah, and all of that, all of that adds a whole other dimension to competing in Olympic Games. And whenever you compete in a foreign country, there's a certain element of that, of the unknown, of um, things are done a little bit differently. I can remember one year I competed at Varsaveld, uh, which is in in Holland, and, and boy, talk about how hard that is. Nobody even speaks the language, so you're right. trying to figure out what you're, what you're supposed to do and where you're supposed to go, and, and you don't even have um, the same language. So it does make you appreciate um, you know, competing at home and competing in your home environment, but I think having had the opportunity to compete internationally, you, you know to expect the unexpected. And so you're less, you're less thrown by it because you know it's, it's going to be different and you'll have to be more flexible. Would you say then that, that McKinley is less of a variable or a question mark than the environment because you know him so well and you know, you guys know each other so well, is he at all a variable in how, in your success competing over the world or, or is it more the environment? Yeah, for sure. He is very consistent, uh, very reliable. You know, that, that certainly helps when you have a horse that you are pretty predictable in terms of how they're going to perform. Um, the one element that, that has been a challenge for him is competing in front of large crowds. Um, the larger the crowd, the more atmosphere, the more environment um, in the dressage phase, at least. Um, has tended to cause him to actually back off a, a little bit and get you know behind my leg and slow down and and um, lose his impulsion and which kind of got us into trouble at the Pan Am Games uh, in 2007. But um, but we were we found some ways to cope with that this year and and that was our focus of our training program leading up to this and and we were able to to tackle that this time. Is that because he's distracted or tense or excited? He's, that's just the way he shows his nerves. You know, um, he goes internal. Some horses explode. You know, some horses that are, are nervous and affected by the environment will explode and, 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 and act out. And he just does exactly the opposite. He, he goes internal and kind of implodes and is like, oh, God, I don't know what's going on, and, and kind of <laughs> goes back that way. Now, uh, that leads me to the question that you know, we're talking about him. What is your biggest challenge doing this sport what what do you what's the thing that you find the most difficult every you work really hard at this you have kids you have a life you have all of that stuff going on but everybody has that one thing that they really have to push themselves to do but it's just part of it 
Yeah. Um, well, I know I struggled earlier when I when I first started eventing. I think most of us come into eventing because we love the adrenaline and the rush of the cross-country phase, and we don't necessarily love doing circles in the dressage arena. Um, so I think earlier, early on, when I started working with McKinley, actually, you know, I didn't love working on the dressage. It was sort of something that we had to do. But, but actually, because uh, McKinley was good at it, I, I did start to like the dressage just for, for itself. But I think early on, that's the part that I really had to uh, sort of, you know, work myself into to working on. Does anybody ride McKinley besides you? Um, I let everybody ride McKinley. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> he, um, I love um, to let my Pony Club students, you know, get on him and have a ride on him and, and get an experience of, of, of what it's like to ride a horse like him. Um, uh, my son has had pony rides on him, walking around the arena, cooling him out, and my two-year-old daughter has been up on him and, and uh, walked around on him with me. So he's, he is very kind and, and shares himself with, with others. Oh, I feel like he's becoming a hero very quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at seventeen three, and you're you're what five three? Mm-hmm. Do you do you feel the difference in size? Does or does your size or his size have an impact, either positive or negative, on the way you ride him? Um. Well, it certainly has helped the fact that he is very rideable. Um, you know, I was a little apprehensive when I first started riding him he was at, at, when he was five because he was so big. Um, but he doesn't ride big cross-country. He went up through the four-star level in a snaffle. Um, you know, I think we worked a lot on the trainability exercise, on, on control and balance, and uh, lots of exercises to develop his ability to compress his stride. And, and we didn't move him up too early. We, we didn't move him up until he really had those foundations established. And so I think one of the keys to being able to, to manage such a big horse was we spent a lot of time in the beginning you know, establishing those foundations. Um, that being said, because he's so big and the collection and engagement in the dressage is not natural for him, that's the part where, where actually I felt small on him, hmm. where I've had to get the help of some other riders. We spent some time uh, in Germany training with Huberto Schmidt, who is much bigger than I am. Um, last year when we were getting ready for the Pan Am Games, Darren Chacha helped ride him and school him for me a couple of times just because of the sheer size and weight that um, when he doesn't feel like rocking back and sitting on his hind end, I am just not physically strong enough to get him to do it. So, so the only time I feel small is in the dressage. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't, look, you didn't look too small on TV. It was such a pleasure to watch, uh, and, and the coverage was pretty good this year for the Olympics. So it yeah. was just such a pleasure to watch you in, in, in all the phases. It was so much fun. Yeah. Well, I have to say that, um, you know, years, it, the dressage takes a long time to develop, and it's taken a long time for him to get stronger. And this year, I really felt like we made huge milestones in, in the ability uh, to, to have the proper balance in the dressage. And I felt like it did really all come together um, that day and had one of his best tests ever. So. Well, I can tell you that when you come back uh, to Rolex next year to do dressage, the stadium is looking huge. It's going to be like you're at the Olympics. Is it? Yeah, I was there yesterday, and the outdoor stadium is just, and the indoor is beautiful. We were we were, we were able to get a tour of the inside here recently, and it's going to be really cool. But the outdoor is going to be huge. You, it, you, it, you will not recognize it at all. <laughs> wow. Well, it's, it's, I'm very excited. Yeah, it sounds, sounds great. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I know we're running out of time. I just wanted to ask one more question. What What's next for you and McKinley? Um, well, like I said, he's just having his little vacation this fall, and then we're we're trying to come up with a plan, um, you know, between what, getting ready for the WAG and what we need to do to get ready for the WAG and his owners, um, who've been huge supporters of, of getting him this far and supported him up to this level and um, are looking, you know, maybe to, to back off a little bit. So we're, we're sort of mapping out a plan right now. We don't have any, any concrete plans, but uh, we're trying to get that figured out. Now, I have a naughty question to wrap this up. Okay. It's so naughty. If you could clone McKinley, would you do it? Or would you have his oh, owners absolutely. do it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, um, it's hard. I'm, not, I'm not horse shopping now, too, because I'm out looking for um, for horses for London 2012 and, and beyond that. And so I've been out to looking at horses and possible prospects. And, boy, I tell you, uh, there are horses, very special horses, that come along, you know, once in a lifetime. And he absolutely is a once-in-a-lifetime horse. I mean, they just 
they just don't come along like that. Um, and I, so of course I would, I would clone them in an instant, you know, corks <laughs> and all. Well, I'll tell you what, in two weeks. needles and all. <laughs> next, next week, we actually have a show on cloning, and we have the scientists on that are doing it in Texas, so we'll put in a good word oh, yeah. for you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we thank you very much, Gina, for being on with us, and uh, maybe as we get closer to the WEG games, we'll have you on again. Matter of fact, on the 2010 radio show we do, we're going to have some panel discussions where we're going to have a bunch of the writers on together in the show. Oh, great. So, so it should be fun to get everybody together for an hour before the games and, and chat. Super. All right. Thanks, Gina. We appreciate it. Go okay. take care of the kids. Get them off to school. You're welcome. And congratulations right. again. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Well, it was certainly great to have Gina on, wasn't it, Helena? Oh, it was fabulous. I love to get the inside scoop I know from, she, from the person herself, you know? And she's, she's got a great personality, too. She's great to talk to on, on interviews because she does, she does express herself and, and tell you exactly how she feels, and she's just a great interview. And, you know, it's once you get people talking about their horses, it's one thing to talk about themselves and their accomplishments, but you get someone talking about their horse and you can go all day. You can talk about bits and you can talk about tack and way of going. It's <laughs> that's what we're here for. Right. Talking exactly. about horses. Exactly. And she, and she has a great horse. That's for sure. Well, I, the other subject we wanted to cover today was the main subject of the eventing show that we wanted to cover was what's happened in the sport this year as far as the safety changes and the things that are going on as a result of s- several tragic accidents over the last number of years. But before we talk, as part of that, though, there is two great stories that came out of this year of individuals who had tragic accidents and who have worked very hard, have been very dedicated, and because of their love of the sport, have come back this year that people never thought would come back or even ride again. And, of course, the first of those is Darren Cha-Cha, who was critically injured in a fall during the cross-country phase at the Florida Red Hills Horse Trial, and that was back in March. Uh, his horse, Baron Birdie, w- was not hurt in that one. Um, and, and actually, I, I, don't, I, I think that one was a rotational fall, so that just means the horse flips over on all the way over, uh, but over, over the top, and then you, you end up usually underneath the horse. Right. Um, he did say in a quote, I do not remember the accident other than having an out-of-body experience at the time. I recall almost nothing of the 42 days he laid in a coma in the hospital. He had a head injury and was in a coma for 42 days. Um, at that that's point, not two weeks. That's 42 days yeah, that's in a, a coma. That's a month and a half. And nobody, you know, the people were worried about him just coming out of the coma, let alone against all odds and with some very hard work and dedication, he returned to competition in July. Mm. I mean, it's just amazing. People, you know, didn't think he was going to make it, and he was back riding in a competition in July. And then the next one, of course, the one that really spurred all of the, that really was the straw that broke the camel's back, was what happened in Rolex in Kentucky in April. Mm -hmm. We lost two horses during that show, and we had a very bad accident with Lane Ashker and her Mount Frodo Baggins. They also basically misread a jump over the large flower basket that's there at Rolex, and the back end of the horse flew up over the air, over the barrier, throwing Ashker and the horse uh, and the horse's front end tumbling forward is what is known as a rotational fall again. So that was the second rotational fall there. Mm. Ashker remained in critical condition on, uh, after that with multiple broken bones, uh, broken ribs, broken jaw, broken clavicle, uh, broken scapula, and collapsed lungs. She was in the hospital over here at the, I believe it was the University of Kentucky, and she was in bad shape also, and people were, you know, certainly didn't think that she was going to make the recovery that she did. Unfortunately, Frodo Baggins was one of the two horses that, that day that had to be euthanized during the event. Uh, she made a remarkable recovery, and she rode at an event in September, just just a month ago in Maryland. So once again, because of hard work and dedication, and she basically said that it's the love of the sport and the fact that her family is the pe- her fellow competitors, the horses and the eventers. That's her family. So she had to get back to it. Right. Uh, but it, but it's as a result of of what happened there and the and what's happened with deaths in the last couple of years around the world. There was a whole lot of pressure put on the SEA, the FEI and the USEF to look at the issue and implement new safety measures. And, you know, 
I think that was a good thing. It was something that was destined to happen. It's unfortunate that it took these events to have it occur, but isn't that's always the way. Again, that's human nature, I think, to react to events rather rather than the other way around. To be proactive. Right. And it's nice to hear that these two stories ended up nicely. Um, unfortunately, and very sadly, Debbie Miller Atkinson passed away uh, this September 30th at Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Debbie was injured during an eventing accident two years ago and suffered a severe spinal cord injury. But her courage and the strength that she had, as well as her determination to be sure that her life had meaning and purpose, really became an inspiration to everyone who had the privilege of knowing her, um, working with her, and understanding her her struggle to live. So, um, you know, it's just, I want to highlight that, that we've got two positive outcomes, but there are more not so positive outcomes and sadly Debbie Miller Atkinson um, represents the not so positive outcome. And we want to send our condolences to her family because this was very recent. It was uh, September 30th, which uh, at the time of this podcast is only two weeks ago. Right. Um, and she worked hard too in the two years that she had since the accident. She really gave her energies and support to the Equestrian Aid Foundation, which was a foundation set up to raise money for injured athletes, injured equestrian athletes, and help with their medical bills and things like that. And she really worked for that. She did get to uh, she did get to go to the to attend the Kentucky three day event, and also uh, River Glen in Tennessee. She got to go and watch. So that was one of the things she wanted to do, and she got to do that uh, before September. So that that was kind of nice too. Yeah, she'll be sadly missed. All right, good. Well, we're going to be going to talk to, right now, Joni Morris, who is the High Performance Communications Manager for the USEF, that's the United States Equestrian Federation, and to discuss what's happened since Rolex and what is planned for the future as as far as safety and eventing is concerned. Great. Just a note before we get to Joni's interview, uh, she was in the parking lot of Fairhill at the time we did the recording, and so the quality of the recording is not perfect, but you can hear her very well, and we think you'll enjoy the interview anyway. Hi, Joni. How are you today? Hi. Good. How are you? Okay. We appreciate you being on. I know that you're just arriving at Fairhill for the the event over there this weekend. That's right. It's our our last eventing event. our last of any national championships run this weekend, the two-star and three-star run here in Maryland at Fairhill, and the one-star runs um, at the Kentucky Horse Park simultaneously. Well, great. I'll tell you what, uh, Fairhill is always exciting because they have the dog show that goes on at the same time. It's just kind of an exciting atmosphere. It's a great day out, that's for sure. No question. Cool. How's the weather down there? Well, it looks like it might rain, which would be a bit foreign for us coming since we're in the middle of a drought, so fortunately I remembered my raincoat. <laughs> yeah, it always rains at Fairhill. I think it's a rule. Always. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Joni. Uh, we did a review at the beginning of the, at the sh- of the show about this year and some of the unfortunate incidents that happened with Darren and Lane. And as a result of Rolex, which was really the thing that with a straw that broke the camel's back, I would say, uh, there was a committee put together. Can you tell us about the committee and what happened as a result of the meetings that that went on? Well, the most important thing that we did was we held a safety summit in June in Lexington, Kentucky, and we invited anyone that had any stake in eventing, whether they were a a rider, an owner, an official, a groom, someone that just was a spectator, they cared about the sport at all, and um, some of these safety issues going on are obviously concerning. When someone has an accident, it's concerning for all of us. Um, And we all got together and basically just had, you know, a big open forum, everyone's Ideas were heard. We put some stuff down on paper. We made some commitments to, to make some changes. Um, and then we, we sent them back to, you know, the respective committees. Um, and you know, the staff and the committee members, who are you know, all volunteers, have worked really hard on them, you know, to sort of make some some changes that are going to be important as the sport of eventing evolves. You know, we want to make sure that it's as, it's as safe as we can make it. Um, so that's, you know, that's sort of been the idea. Uh, our president, David O'Connor, you know, basically set a challenge at the beginning of the safety summit that anything that we do going forward to make the sport safer should be to, you know, to minimize horse falls. I mean, it, it makes pretty good sense when you think about it, that the, the chance of an injury to a horse or to a rider is, is 
um, greatly increased if a horse falls. Um, so all the things that we've done, we've, we've sort of done with that in mind. And some of them, it might seem like a, a couple dots to connect to get there to that objective, but that's the idea. Um, and the first one that actually went into effect um, on May 19th, so even before the safety summit, but after Rolex, was the elimination after one fall of a, of a rider on cross-country related to a jump. So, right, right. you know, if a rider pops off because a horse trips just cantering, you know, across the flat ground, they can get back on. But if, if they pop off going over a jump, um, you know, they, they walk home. And we just decided that you know, that was a really good initiative to do. And the FEI, which is the International Federation for the Sport, quickly adopted it after the United States took the lead on that. And it actually... You know, you know, but the Olympics, it, it was it was it was a major a major player that rule for a, couple, a number of the team results, including one of our riders that right. fell off. Exactly, you know, the, cross country. The, yep. With the, yeah, the rule changing, so you can't get back on, and that rule's been in effect in show jumping. So it, it you know it it's um it's consistent with that. I guess is the best the best way to put it. And was the USEF a little worried about um, implementing such a strong new rule, and then were you a little scared about it, or? I'm thinking that um, you, you bring this strong rule into effect, and then next thing you know, the FEI adopts it as well. So that had to kind of make you feel good, right? Yeah, it did, and a number of other national federations adopted it. Um, it was definitely met with some resistance. You know, obviously, anything you do with horses is not inexpensive, and so people, there was some definite resistance that if someone fell off the third fence at an event that, you know, maybe they only go to five a year and, and you know, land on their feet, but they can't get back on, well, that's a bit unfair, but... We also have seen some cases where riders were maybe getting back on when they shouldn't have, and then something they were having another um, incident on the course. And so, it, you know, it's it took people a long time to come around, and I'm sure there's people that haven't come around um, 100% to it. But I, I think that David O'Connor, it was definitely a brave decision that he made. But like you said, when the FEI adopted it pretty readily afterwards, it reaffirmed the fact that you know it was we were on the right track. Yeah, well, I think and I brave think, is a good word. A yeah, good choice well, of words. Any of those decisions are going to be met with resistance. It's just that it's just the way it is. Absolutely, and you know, people um, are you know can be resistant to change in the way that you know it used to be many years ago. That um, I should preface it by saying now, if if you have a horse fall, you're obviously eliminated on the cross country or or in the show jumping for that matter. But it used to be that you could get you know when your horse got up, you could get back on. You know, back back in the I don't want wasn't to call it the up to days, three but, times. Maybe at one point it was three times. Yeah. In my in my memory, you know, I can I remember it being two times. Two times. Yeah. Um, so you know, the sport's changing, and there's more people doing it than ever before. Which you know, so we we need to be mindful of that, and we have to keep safety as a first priority. So sometimes, you know, people might think it doesn't apply to them, but we have to look at look out for the welfare of the sport as a whole and for all of our horses and riders. You know, and and sure, maybe someone will be disappointed. Um, because they don't get to get back on at some point or with some of these other rules. But you know, the bigger picture is, is is very important as well. So we're trying to be very mindful of that. Now, I know one of the, on the forums, one of the interesting threads that uh, was causing a lot of commotion right after Rolex was the, was the talk about they have to put tougher qualifications in to move up levels. And I, I think that's part of what's coming December 1st, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and it's, you know, it's... A, a bit technical to go through the actual right, and right, and we'll put we'll put that on our show notes. We'll have the, all the regulations there that people can read them. Right, but basically, you know, they, we we want to make sure that people are really competent at the level, not just qualified to move up the level. So there's a difference because there's always going to be someone that's minimally qualified, just the nature of anything. But we want to make sure that that person has enough experience at the at the previous level that it's as safe as as we can make it with our with our rules, you know, to have them have them um, continue their progression up through the levels. And going along with that um, is something called the la- the loss of establishment of of qualification, which is also effective December first. And it it has includes things like if a, if a horse is eliminated twice um, for a non technical reason, so you know, for for too many stops or for a fall or that kind of thing. In a six-month period, it has to go down a level um, because it will lose its qualification at the level that, that those incidents occur. Um, and again, and it's a bit easier you know, to read, but people it, might it doesn't think, make sense. People might think that's rare, but it's not rare. No, it's not rare. And it's, it's basically, you know, we, we want to make sure that the riders, you know, stay mindful that they're responsible, you know, for themselves and their horses and that if they have a couple of mistakes – it's not going to do them any harm to drop down a level and just, you know, reaffirm their skills and get a little bit of extra help and then 
you know, go forward from there. And so we're just trying to, re, you know, you can't legislate response, rider responsibility, um, but, you know, we can do the best job we can as far as making, tightening up the qualifications to, to make it. So you have to jump through a couple of hoops, you know, before you can move up a level and, and get, make sure that you and your horse have the experience, if, if nothing else, to, to do so. So that's the idea behind that. I, I I have to say that I'm really impressed. You guys did this, and it has some teeth to it. It's not just show. When you read no. these re- regulations, it does have some teeth to it, especially the regu- the things coming in December, with which are which involve preliminary and up, right? Uh, uh, about moving up, and then also getting moved down back down. It it, it does have some teeth, right? And you know, and we appreciate hearing you know hearing that from you as well, and. Definitely, because this is something that we do take we take it seriously, and we've our qualifications. Um, so some of this, some of the qualifications, the new qualifications were written even before some of these unfortunate accidents happened in the spring. But it really, you know, we we need to, we've made sure our ducks were all in a row, and, and the loss of establishment of qualification, like you said, you know, being bumped back down a level, that's really important because you know it it doesn't just it means that someone just can't keep trying to go at a level that they're not ready for, you know, even that they have to go back down and, and re rehone their skills. So I think that that's really important as far as education goes, because education is, a, you, know, you know, is a huge part of this, obviously. And people are coming to eventing from different backgrounds than they ever have before. I mean, it used to be, you came to eventing through fox hunting or you came to eventing riding off your farm. And now there's people that come to eventing just from riding in the ring and it's, you know, not right or wrong, but it's just different. And so we need to make sure that those people that are maybe not used to cantering down a hill, you know, get the experience doing that kind of thing, riding over different terrain, you know, different kinds of weather, different kinds of fences, you know, at, at a level where they're safe and, and competent and comfortable. And it eliminates that feeling where that you always need to, to move up and, 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 jump higher and go faster well this means that you have to get the necessary experience before you can do that right so you're putting the responsibility through this governance you're putting the responsibility back on to the riders and their trainers right and and i mean like i said there's always going to be people that are you know minimally qualified and so then you know but with so much focus on this we hope that people really you know take it seriously and look after themselves and their horses you know to the best of of their ability and, and get good help and good training and you know, along with that goes with um, the U.S. Eventing Association's Instructor Certification Program, which has been very successful so far, but we have a, made a serious commitment to certify a lot more instructors and, and give that program some real incentive so that people search out those trainers that have been involved in the program that, you know, have been recognized as having the necessary experience and skills to really help riders get the education that they need. I mean, eventing certainly isn't an easy sport. No one will tell that. Um, so we want to make sure that, you know, that, that the education is available and people know, know where they can find it. And there's standards that they can adhere to something that they can, um, that's been tried and tested and knows that, that this is the elite, your, your instructor certification program. Right. And, you know, we have it at every level. We have for, you know, the, um, you know, up from, from level one up before. So, you know, for instructor certification, so that means that, you know, if you just want to go novice or beginner novice, you can still find an instructor who is focused and an expert on coaching that level of rider. If you want to compete at the advanced level, there are instructors that, that that's their focus, too. So it's a, it's a broad spectrum um, educational program that the USEA is, and has implemented, and it's been, it's been in effect for a number of years. But, we're, you know, we've, at our safety summit in June, David made it. David O'Connor made a huge commitment to get, you know, to try and get 500 certified instructors. So basically, to a little bit more than double what we have over the next three years. And you know, again, it's a big commitment, but it's something that you know is, is very important as the sport grows like crazy in popularity. We want to make sure that there's as many qualified people in in the U.S. To, you know, to teach eventing as possible. And the U.S. is a little bit different than a place like England because it's so spread out. In England, you can drive two hours and probably get to 20 of any professionals. Well, there's places in this country where you could drive for two hours and you would still be 10 hours from your closest, you know, uh, big name trainer, say. So we want to reach right. out to those areas and make sure that we get people all over the country that, you know, can, can be part of this program and, and make it accessible and affordable to instructors and their students alike. Now, will you set up instructor certification centers around the U.S.? Will you have it broken up into regions or by area? 
Yeah, it's something that the USEA is, is really looking into, and they have clinics and workshops set up now, and I know they're working really hard on trying to, you know, piggyback those maybe, say, onto the back of an event where they know a lot of people will be will be traveling 10 hours right. to, you know, ride, ride at the right. event. Well, then maybe the Monday and Tuesday after the event, everyone's already there, so then you you have the, the clinic then, so that, like I said, so it's more accessible to people, and they can drive their 10 hours back to you know, maybe they're in uh, Michigan or Montana or somewhere and take that, that knowledge and that information and that certification back to, you know, maybe their 10 students that they teach that wouldn't necessarily have access to that kind of um, qualified instruction. Right, right. So now you're taking, on, on the other side of the coin, you've got um, your, the USEF is undertaking an effort to focus on the frangible technology, which is the, um, for lack of a better word, and you'll, you'll help me out here, sort of breakaway fences. Um, so you've got the responsibility on the riders and the trainers, and now the USEF is taking on some responsibility with this new technology for cross-country um, jumps. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, frangible technology is something that's been in existence for, um, you know, uh, I want to say the better part of a decade was something called a frangible pin. If a horse hits a jump, the pin um, the pin breaks and the rail drops away. A horse has to hit uh, the fence at a you know with a certain amount of force, um, and it can only be used in certain types of jumps because of the nature of the design. The most important thing to remember about frangible technology is it's not just as simple as making all the jumps fall down. It has to be based in engineering and and scientific. Um, research and, and engineering principles, and I'm certainly not an engineer, so that, that aspect of it is far far be, beyond me. Well, that makes three of us. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea is that, um, you know, ill-designed frangible te technology can actually be more troublesome than than helpful in a situation when a, when a horse hits a fence. So the USEF um, and the USDA, and we've teamed up with, with the University of Kentucky, <clears throat> their School of Engineering, and... Um, some of their professors and some of their, their great students that were just in our office a couple of days ago um, to sort of build on the work that's been done in Europe, and that's, that's where they invented the frangible pin um, at the Transportation Research Laboratory at, um, at Bristol, Univer and Bristol University in Great Britain. We want to build on that and come up with different kinds of jump construction that's, that's frangible. And then obviously, like I said, it needs to be based on engineering, so teaming up with a great engineering school is a perfect way to do it. And with the, the World Games coming in 2010 to Kentucky, the University of Kentucky was all over this. They, I mean, they are really excited about it. And you know, they, they're, they're going to study the way the horses fall, the way that horses hit fences, how you, we can make different-looking jumps be frangible. So you don't just have to jump 20. If you want every fence to be frangible on the course, well, then at this moment, every fence would pretty much have to look some you look like a, uh, a, a jump fence, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, we, right. you know, to use the frangible pin. So this is so that we can maybe make a ditch and wall frangible or to make um, an open, you know, open oxers can already be pinned, you know, to, to make a table frangible, different kinds of fences that can be frangible and to make them look solid so that a horse doesn't gallop down there and think it's jumping a show jump. I mean, that doesn't solve any of the any of the problems, really. It doesn't. And it, and it gets away from being eventing. So you, you want the horse and rider to respect the fence. But that if a mistake happens and, and a horse or rider gets into trouble, that their the frangible technology will, will break or, or deform in a way that you know hopefully will prevent a horse fall. That's you know that's the bottom line with all of this. And um, you know, now, are they hoping to are they hoping to have a lot of that research in place by 2010? Is that a goal or? Um, it's you know I haven't heard them set that that goal. You know they're they're moving pretty quickly. The University of Kentucky. This is this is a bunch of really ambitious students just from the, the little discussion that I had with some of them and with David O'Connor after his meeting with them. Um, I mean, they, I, they, they love to, you know, they'd love to get some ideas and then send them out and test them. You know, it's going to be a little bit of, there's going to be a lot of testing involved in this because what works like anything in a lab sometimes doesn't work in real life. Do they have um, crash test horses? Right. <laughs> well, the, the, that's, the, they do have one in England. They have this mechanical horse that they, that they crash into jumps. And, that's um, that's great. And, so, which is which, which has been fascinating, and which is how they tested the frangible pin. Um, but you know, they they want to try out different materials, different kind of construction, different design um, of of the actual fences. You know, this is a different component than say course design, which is the layout of the jumps. I mean, that's something different. But this is the actual fence construction and what they're made out of, and how they can be made in a way that 
it, it's still eventing. It's still cross country. It still has all those great things that everyone that loves the sport of eventing um, and likes to gallop through fields and jump stone walls and into water and all that kind of thing can embrace. But it's in a way that if a mistake is made, it's it's more forgiving. So it's a fascinating thing, and everyone is really excited about it from the engineers to you know, David O'Connor and, and the course builders that are involved. Wow, this is great for the for the students over there. They get to play with all kinds of tools and great big jumps. I mean, exactly. And I, you know, something that was was brought up is, um, and I'm I'm not probably will not have my scientific terminology uh, correct. So anyone out there that's a scientist, forgive me. But you know, to basically put sensors on a horse and study the way that they jump or the way that they, you know, make a mistake at a fence, you know, with I'm trying to think of the word. You I, I know. Think it's the same thing um, they did to map human movement and stuff. Exactly. So right. that you can put a horse moving on a computer that's, right. a, that's right. an actual real-time horse moving and see, you know, see what they do and how their bodies move and, and where, where they make mistakes and what they do with their body scientifically when they make a mistake and how you can help them stay out of trouble in that situation. So it's really, you know... It's it's fascinating technology, and we're you know we're launching a big fundraising campaign because we don't we you know we don't want it to be cost prohibitive, prohibitive at all. Um, you know we want to we're jumping in uh, with both feet to this, and we hope that everyone else will. And I think that because there's been such a commitment to all, all of these safety initiatives, you know we've had some great support so far, and you know we just hope that that continues. And everyone's really excited about the program, and they they they're hoping to get you know, a whole bunch of information back to us by the end of the semester, which, you know, ambitious co- ambitious college kids are a great resource. So we're looking forward <laughs> to, to, to what they can tell us about our sport. Well, I, I know that you have to get going here because you're heading off. I just had one more question for you. Sure. Are you expecting any other rule changes uh, this year or early next year to be coming down in addition to these, or is this going to be – we're going to see what happens here with all of these? Um, we've had a, there have been a couple of other rule changes and sort of safety or uh, research um, initiatives set up. I don't see any other extraordinary rule changes on the books right now. Um, I, you know, I, that's not a promise that there won't. You know, we've done right. Well, I think things. that it's it's uh, time to see if how these affect the sport. Right, and I mean, you know, sometimes reacting too quickly can be as detrimental as, as, you know, taking your time. And so we need to sort of see how this plays out. The one, the one other thing that I will touch on, which we're, we're hoping to be in effect by the end of the year, which was born directly out of the safety summit. So it had a lot of support there is what we call the watch list. <clears throat> and that is, it's a way to inform a competitor that they've been observed potentially riding dangerously at an endorsed comp, one of our endorsed competitions. Mm. Um, and it's still the, the specifications of that are being defined. And, and well, um, England does that already. I know they have a watch list that goes out to all the events before somebody goes there, and people know ahead of time which riders are on the watch list. Right, and, it, and ours is going to be some form of that. But it's basically, you know, to go back to the, you know, to the rider responsibility thing, it's like, Hey, here's a heads up. You know, you maybe just need to go back and and re hone your skills because you know you've been seen riding dangerously, and you know we're looking out for you and your horse and the sport. You know, all three things. And I think it's a it's just a great way to give people a heads up. And it's not you know we don't want it to be a a threat or you know a humiliating experience for people, but we want it to be something that people have some respect for and you know take take seriously. So that's that. Are we're we, hoping are- to have that by December first as well. Are we looking at the watch list being below preliminary as well, or is that just preliminary and above? The, the final specs of that are not finalized yet, okay. so I don't, I don't want to say we've one certainly way or all seen sure. the riders below preliminary that are dangerous as well. So. A- absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, and my, my understanding is, is that it would be across the sport, not just preliminary and above, but I haven't seen the final specifications of that um, as as of right yet, you know, and and people should just check our website because it'll it'll be up there as soon as it's finalized. Because um, we want to make sure we get that absolutely right, as it's a pretty, you know, for for us it's a it's a it's a brand new initiative and it's something that we take quite seriously. But we want it to be fair as well as being effective. Well, I gotta say, I'll let you go with this. You guys did a good job of getting ahead of this. And if you hadn't, and and I don't know if people realize this, Congress, if there were a couple more deaths, Congress was going to step in. Um, well, um, we've seen Congress take on racing, you know, recently. Right. So 
it's something that, you know, it's, it's something that we all take seriously. You know, I, I grew up in the sport of eventing. It's my background and it's a sport that I absolutely love, but I also know a lot of these people that have, you know, have had accidents and we, you know, we, we needed to just take, take some proactive steps and, you know, really reaffirm our commitment to safety, which I feel like we've done. And I, you know, it's, it's been, it's been very difficult at times, but it's been interesting. And it's, it, it, what's amazing to me is how much people care about this sport and care about their horses. And, you know, that is the thing that we have to keep in the forefront of our mind at, at all times. Yep. And we'll keep that in mind, but there still will be those whiners next year, the ones who get knocked down. <laughs> so, they're going to be out please, there. You can't please all the people all the, all time. the time. We're doing our very best to try. Well, we're going to let you go. Please a lot of people over there at Fairhill. Enjoy your weekend and have fun Thank at the event. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot, Joni. Bye, Thanks. Joni. Bye. Well, that was lightning. I'm glad Joni agreed to come on. She was actually sitting in the parking lot at Fairhill waiting to go say hi to everybody. So, <laughs> so I appreciated her talking to us at this last-minute uh, conversation about this. And obviously she's been involved in it intimately and knows knows the story. We're, we will put all the complete list of rules, uh, a link to it on the show notes. So <clears throat> you can go see what all the rules are and what goes into effect in, in December here. I think that the rules are tough. I'll tell you what, you have to gain a certain what they call a not na- na- <clears throat> excuse me national qualifying result. Mm-hmm. So that means you finish an entire horse trials with not more than fifty penalty points in dressage, no jumping penalties at obstacles in cross country. That's not even any penalties, no refusals, anything. We even time refusals? I mean, time points? Well, time points, no more than 60. uh, I think it's uh, 90 seconds, 36 penalty points, exceeding the optimum time. Okay. So if you're there, you don't even get this national qualifying result either, and no more than 16 penalties in show jumping. So with all of those things in place, this national qualifying result, they call it NQR, you have to get a certain number of those to be able to move up to the next level. Okay. And, and so you see there that, you know, any stop or any points at all in cross country and you don't get those points. So it has some teeth to it. And, you know, it's it's fair because it's broad. It, I, I, like I she can't said, wait. it covers the whole spectrum. <laughs> yeah, but I can't wait to see the uh, Chronicle forums when a few people, it takes them forever to move to the next level. That's when you're going to start seeing people start to whine and this isn't fair and that kind of thing. Well, hopefully if these if the average Joe, the average eventer out there seeks out, what she's saying is if they seek out a certified instructor, they should be getting the type of quality training and education that will help them move up the levels. Um, like she said, she used a great key phrase, which was they want riders to be competent, not just qualified. Right. Exactly. So maybe through this combination of rules and education, if you're working with a certified um, trainer, you won't get stuck at a level and never be able to move up. I mean, you know, it's a long shot. Maybe it's not a long shot, but it's the theory. And, you know, let's, let's see if it works in practice. And I, I, I want to clarify for everybody, too, that you and I, we're, we're fans of eventing. My wife was an eventer for a very – I sat in a lot of cross-country courses sweating her <laughs> going through that cross-country course. So, <laughs> and she's a, a pretty accomplished rider, but still, you know, accomplished riders have accidents. It happens. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we love eventing. It's one of my favorite sports. We both have worked for eventing companies. Yeah. So, so it's, it's not that we're picking on eventing here. We, we love eventing. We just I, – I want to see it like Joni. Uh, I want to see it safe so there's less of this getting out to the news because all the news ever hears about, they don't hear about all the events where there's no accidents. They hear about the ones where there is. Right. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to sensationalize the bad stuff. And then all horse sports are going to get a bad name. And, 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 you know, eventing is, I love it because it's so well-rounded. It tests so many different things about the horse and rider partnership, um, you know, the athleticism. And it's, it is a little bit friendlier, I mean, some people may disagree with me, but um, it's a little bit friendlier than <laughs> there some come of the, the other emails disciplines. Now. <laughs> Send them to Helena <laughs> at horseradionetwork.com. Send um, her all those emails. So uh, anyway, I, yeah, well, you I agree with you. This. 
Well, you know what? The people tend to be a little bit different uh, and uh, what, what you call friendlier. I think because they're ri- they know they're out there risking bodily parts every weekend. Uh, you know, it is it, it is a different mentality. It's it, and, and you know, every, you you were talking about it tests everything, and you know, the dressage phase is a good test for them. Even though most eventers would like to just eliminate that and never have it, yeah. um, that's true of most eventers too. Well, I I mean, even Gina said it, you know, she, yeah. she wasn't crazy about the dressage phase, but what it does do, which, and this is one of the things I like about inventing is it opens your mind up to things that you might not appreciate until you have to do it. Well, and then I you pl- suddenly get this new perspective for, wow, you know what? Dressage is actually pretty cool. And it gives the horse the fundamentals they need to do anything else. Right. It's those fundamental fundamentals of training. Even, even Western riders, uh, many of them will teach dressage or a form of dressage to their horses because they know that's the fundamentals for training. Right. So I wanted to mention, too, this just I just noticed this actually on the Internet. She mentioned racing, the horse racing, uh, the thoroughbred. Uh, let me see who it was here. It just just happened, actually. The th- thoroughbred racing industry has just adopted new rules as of today it's the thoroughbred racing Associ- national thoroughbred racing association and it's in association with a bunch of the well, i guess all the states and the racetracks and most of them are represented here and they're agreeing to new rules for safety it's as timely uh and what they're talking about is uniform medication rules for each racing state which they've never had before a ban on steroids from racing competition interesting wow Uniform penalties for medication infractions, and, and that's been that was different in every state. The penalties, mandatory on-track and non-racing injury reporting, which you would think they were doing already. Mandatory installation of protective inner safety rail. Wow, I wonder if that's going to be like NASCAR has that cushion rail, so when the cars hit the rail, they're they're not going 200 miles an hour. It absorbs a lot of the impact. Ooh, that's interesting. Mandatory pre and post race security. That's probably to keep an eye on them so they don't inject them right before the race. Right. That'll keep the steroids <laughs> off guess. the track. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and adoption of a placement program for thoroughbreds no longer competing. Yay! This is awesome. Now, this is really interesting because these are pretty significant. Like you're talking about, this has some teeth as well. Yeah. You know, I, I'd be interested to see. It doesn't go into great detail about each one of these. This is just out. I mean, literally just out. So it'll be interesting to see in future weeks. Oh, and they have appointed former Wisconsin governor and I think presidential candidate at one point, Tommy Thompson, as the one to lead the committee to make sure these rules are implemented. So they and he's he's a high price guy. So they're paying they're they're putting their money where their mouth is here for this. I got to give him credit for that. Yeah, I know. I don't I know next almost nothing about um, thoroughbred racing safety, but they have established the um, Safety and Integrity Alliance, which it sounds to be like the the national governing body, which is an offshoot of the National Thoroughbred Racing Association. So they've also set up this committee. Um, well, and as Joni said, the government was getting involved in this one. Congress was, you know, getting involved after the after the. Uh, the unfortunate incident there at the Kentucky Derby. Right. So Congress was definitely stepping in. Um, And of course we just heard that big Brown this week uh, is out of racing because of a hoof injury and that he wasn't racing at the time. Mm. So, you know, things do still happen to horses uh, no matter what you do. No, but it's good to see that there's such a big push. And it's so unfortunate though, that sometimes bad things have to happen in order for good things to come of it. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a shame that we can't be more proactive, but I just think that is our life. And it's human. Yeah, it's, it's our human na- nature. It's, it's human just, nature. We've got. And to it's not. It's not just the United States for, or Americans on that front either. No, because you know what, animals, horses, they don't know boundaries. You know, and and it's just whether you're in the UK or the US or you're in Texas or you're in Boston, um, you know, you kind of have to have one. It's just horse people. In general, 
period. Spe- or speaking sports. Of animals not knowing boundaries. My greyhound's here bugging me. I think she thinks it's time to go for her walk soon. So I think we better wrap this show up. All right. It's been a great show, an exciting show. I'm, we'll, we'll be doing eventing shows again next year, I'm sure. It's a passion of, of, uh, of ours. So we want to thank everybody for coming on the show. We want to thank Joni from the USEF. We want to thank Gina Miles. She was great, and, and we appreciate her being on. Be sure to listen to next week's show. It's the cloning show. It's also going to be a very interesting topic. People are polarized with this topic. They either agree with it or they disagree with it. We'll be talking both sides next week, and we'll be talking to the actual people who do it, which is what's making it very exciting for the show next week. Be sure to check out all the links to Gina's site and over to the USCF rules and all that stuff at our show notes at stablescoop.com. Also, uh, Helene and I both have blogs there at stablescoop.com. You can check those out. You can also send us feedback at geeks, G-E-E-K-S, at horseradionetwork.com or leave us a voicemail at 270-803-0025. Thanks again to the Barnworks for sponsoring this week's episode. And we'll see you again next week for a little bit of cloning, Alina. Yep, and we'll be here with the scoop. 